Good evening. Well, that was awfully quiet. Good evening. This evening, we are going to be continuing in our series of studies in the book of Nehemiah. So you can turn there with me to Nehemiah chapter 7. In Nehemiah 7, we're going to look at the reforms that Nehemiah implemented in Judah after they completed the walls. Before we even start, you know, it's really important to see that, that there were things that had to be done first. Things had to be done first. The the, the walls had to be rebuilt before you could rebuild the nation. As we know, you know, you don't have walls, you don't have a nation, right? You don't have a country. We're seeing that in our southern border. When you don't have walls, when you can't protect what you've established and what you've built, it's, it's like, let's put it this way, let's say you, you go out Christmas shopping and you have all of your gifts under the tree and then you go out and you leave the door open. When you come home, the tree's gone. It's like the Grinch showed up. The packages are all gone, all your decorations are gone. Even the roast beast. You know, what happens when we, when we let our guard down All that we've accomplished and all that we can accomplish is jeopardized. So, we're going to see that Nehemiah wisely gave priority to the walls. Afterward, he was able to accomplish the things that needed to be accomplished. The things were actually more important than the walls. The walls just gave them the opportunity to do what they needed to do. See, without the walls to build the houses and rebuild the nation wouldn't have made much sense. So first things first. But now we get to the real issue and the real reason why Nehemiah built the walls in the first place, and that was to reform the nation, to reform Judah. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you in advance for your word. We thank you for always speaking to our hearts and giving us understanding and application from the scriptures. We pray that as we study the reforms that Nehemiah implemented, that we'd look twofold, the things that perhaps need to happen in our nation and in our culture, but maybe in our lives. Maybe the things that need to change in our hearts. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us the ability to make applications. Speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Nehemiah did secure the city of Jerusalem after rebuilding the wall. So he had to secure the city as well as just the land. He had to take care of the people, the institution. And so we read in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah, after the wall had been rebuilt, and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hananiah, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them, and also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their own, or excuse me, some at their posts, and some near their own homes. So you see the the wisdom. It wasn't just the walls that needed to be built. The city needed to be, be 
to be rebuilt. The, the people needed to be reformed, and so he appointed leaders and established policies to protect the city. You know, when you have a leader that truly is concerned for the welfare of the people, they're going to make decisions that protect the people, as opposed to decisions that destroy the people. We have a nation filled with leaders that keep making decisions that are demonic and are going to destroy us as a people. And that goes to show you that we're not being led by godly leaders at all, not even close. In fact, quite the opposite. I pray that they fail every day. And they are failing, but unfortunately, they're failing and they're bringing the nation down with them. Nehemiah was determined not to fail. He had rebuilt the entire wall of Jerusalem in 52 days. 52 days. And he immediately appointed gatekeepers and singers and Levites so that they could worship God. That's what those positions were all about. And he appointed men that he could trust to be in charge of the city. It's so important to put people in positions of leadership that you can trust. Trust is everything. And so he starts with his brother Hanani, the, brother, the very brother who had returned to Persia and told him all about what was happening in Judah. But this same brother who had traveled with him to Jerusalem and from the citadel of Susan, also another man named Hananiah, who was the commander of the citadel, he was a man of integrity who feared God more than most. So he finds two guys he can trust, and he puts them in charge of the city. Why would that be important? Because Nehemiah understands he can't do everything. He can't be the governor and reform the people and still be in charge of protecting the city. So he gives that to someone else, to two other people. And then he ordered them to do a few things. This is the protocol. Keep the gates closed until the morning and close them at night. Makes sense, right? I think when I was a kid, I don't know if we ever locked our doors. Maybe when we went away for the summer. But to be honest with you, we lived in a decent neighborhood. We knew everybody on the block. There were never any break-ins. So many times we didn't really worry too much. We had three doors on the house, a front side and back door. And I can tell you, at any point, my friends just walked in. They, my dad told them, just, just don't even, just come in. Don't even worry about it. Just come in. So, you know, I lived in a, at a time that was different than today. Today, you know, you have 17 locks. You have a, 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 a ring doorbell monitoring everything that's going on, looking for porch pirates and we have cameras around the house, right, Mr. Frank? Cameras around the house monitoring motion detectors and everything. And, you know, if, if so much as a little thing happens, a squirrel decides to come up to the door, you know, the authorities are alerted immediately. They were living at a dangerous time. They needed to be on guard. And so he made this protocol that made a lot of sense. And he ordered them to appoint the residents as the, of the city as guards. So sort of like a militia. The idea is like, hey, listen, don't just go to sleep. You know, keep your eyes open. If you see something, say something. That's the idea. Here, Nehemiah is really determined to maintain the protection of the city. He worked hard to rebuild those walls with the people. He wasn't about to give it all up just because they would let their guard down. And you can never, ever let your guard down when the enemy is out there looking to destroy you and bring you down. Amen? Well, then he made plans to restore the population in the city. You see, up until this point, there were people living in the villages, but they hadn't really come to live in the city because the city wasn't safe until now. And so we read in verses 4 through 5, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So 
My God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return, and this is what I found written there. And we'll look at that in just a minute. So he starts to do a little research, and he finds out, who, well, who came back here first, and who owns what land, and who should be living in the city but isn't? Let's get things the way they need to be. The city was severely underpopulated, not a problem we have around here. But it was underpopulated, and the homes still needed to be rebuilt, and they could do that now that the walls had been rebuilt. And God directed him, notice, God directed him, I want you to notice that again, God directed him, look at this, so my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles. One of the things you got to love about Nehemiah is whatever decision he made, it was God leading him, and he led others because God led him. You can't lead anyone as a spiritual leader unless you're being led by the Holy Spirit. In this case, Nehemiah was looking for God to direct him. He prayed all the time, and God did direct him. God put it in his heart. That is, this decision wasn't his. This was God's. He discerned that it was the right thing to do. And so he assembled all the people living in Judah to to register by family so they could figure out who should be living in the city and who should not be living in the city. Now, everyone could, couldn't live in the city, but certainly uh, most of them, many of them should be. It was safer, it was better, and this way they could rebuild their city and their nation. Now, the fact that he looked f- to God for solutions when confronting practical problems is a very important principle in leadership. You need to look to God for solutions, not go online and, you know, like I do when I'm trying to fix something, you know, I probably should just pray and not bother, but I was installing a thermostat the other day, and I must have watched about 15 videos to see how this thing worked, and out an old furnace and a smart thermostat, uh, you might say a dumb furnace and a smart thermostat, and they didn't really talk to each other very well, so I watched a mess of videos so that when I finally did the installation, it went smoothly for the most part. It's a little too smart. It was shutting off my heat when it didn't know I was home, when I was home, so it was a little weird. But the point I mentioned this is that, you know, when we're doing something like that, we go, we do all the research, we ask all the questions. Oh, that's great. I'm sure you've done that as well. But what is it that when we're leading in the church, we don't go to God first? Oh, we'll watch the YouTube videos. We'll, you know, read the Reddit posts. We'll we'll look at all of the community sites and see what people have to say about our problem. We'll call every one of our friends. We'll ask the pastor, the assistant pastor. But do we really ever just go to God and wait for him to direct us? See, Nehemiah did that, and so he didn't always have to ask for direction because he had the direction he needed. So he looked to God for solutions when confronting practical problems. I encourage you to do likewise. Registering the people by families would enable them to be restored to the city, a very practical step. And what he did is he found the record of those who had been the first to return to Judah. So what we're about to read has nothing to do with the time in which Nehemiah was leading. This goes back some period of time to 94 years earlier, in 538 B.C. Ezra documented this, but this actually happened in Ezra's past. It happened in Nehemiah's past. But the people had had a heart to return to God's promise 94 years early, earlier, and he was picking up the pieces of something that got started. So he goes back to the original people that returned and begins to try to piece together 
all of the families that came and where they should be living so that he can do this right. And so we read through the sections here, and I'm not going to read all of it because a lot of it's a list of names, but in verses 6 through 7, the Jewish leaders did have a heart for God and for his people. And we see that as he looks in the historical and genealogical records, we read, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramaiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispareth, Bigvi, Nahum, and Benash. So the names of the leaders and the people, we're going to get to some of the people in just a minute, but the names of the leaders were mentioned. These were the leaders that had a heart for God and for his people. Nehemiah is following the legacy of Joshua, Jeshua, and Zerubbabel who started the entire restoration of Jerusalem and Judea after the captivity, after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and then later in Babylon under the Persian Empire. So he goes back to the documentation, and we, we've already talked much about Zerubbabel. Uh, he was the grandson of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. So he was the, the heir to the throne. He was a leader. He led the people, again, going back 94 years before, uh, there was also uh, Yeshua, who was the son of Yasadak. He was uh, the high priest of the Jews, and so an important individual, mentioned by Haggai and Zechariah. These were prominent fi- figures at that time. And then you have these names, Nehemiah and Mordecai. They're, they're, they're common names. This is not the Nehemiah of the book of Nehemiah, nor is this the Mordecai of the book of Esther. They're just names that are mentioned. This is like almost 100 years before those things happened. All right, So don't be confused with that. But the Jews that follow these leaders had a heart for God and for his people, and he's trying to inspire the people that were living there now to have a heart for God and for his people. So he goes back to the history, to the word of God, really, and he learns some things. Uh, I'm not going to read verses 8 through 65. Uh, I'll touch on a few things here. Uh, First of all, in verses 8 through 38, you have the leaders in the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so there's a lot of names there and a lot of numbers You have a list of all the people, again, going back 100 years earlier, the people that had returned. Uh, You get to verses 39 through 60. You have the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. All of their names and the numbers are listed there. Very important document, but we're not so concerned about that today. Then you get to verse 61, and this is interesting because we learn in 61 that the following came up from the towns of Telmala, Talharma, Kerub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not show that their families were descended from Israel. And then it lists the descendants of Deliah, Tobiah, Nakoda, and from among the priests, the descendants of a number of other people mentioned here. But these individuals, it's important to note, they didn't have the appropriate documentation. They were sort of undocumented. And while they knew they were Jews, they couldn't prove it. They couldn't prove where they were descended from. And so these undocumented men and women, without any proof of ancestry, had no choice but to sort of hang back. Uh, And we learn in verse 64, they searched for their family records, but they could not find them, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. That is, they couldn't prove they were descended from the priests, so they couldn't serve as priests. Notice, though, it says, the governor therefore ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there should be a priest ministering with Urim and Thummim. 
And I'll explain that in just a minute. So they had to wait. These people just couldn't jump right in uh, like the other priests could because they had proof of their ancestry. Now, the Jews unsuccessfully tried to find these genealogical records, uh, but not being able to do that, they had to wait until a high priest was ordained, one who was ministering with Urim and Thummim, and then they could confirm their ancestry. Now, how could they do that? Well, we've talked about this before. I believe we talked about this when we were in the book of Ezra as well. The priest wore the breastplate of decision. Sort of, he wore sort of an apron, and he had um, a, a sort of a pocket that he wore, a breastplate with the, the gems of the 12 tribes, and in that were, were pockets, and in there was the, uh, the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, we believe they were stones of some sort. We don't really know, uh, but the words actually literally mean lights and perfection, and they were in the breastplate of decision then this basically means that whatever these things were, they were used to determine and discern God's will. They were not magic, but it wasn't random either. So how they worked, no one knows exactly what they were or precisely how they worked. Just that God worked through these, Urim and Thummim, in order to direct his people when the word of God didn't give them explicit direction. They had the Urim and the Thummim, they had the lights, and the perfections, and they were used by the high priest to discern the Lord's will and make decisions. And you might be thinking, wow, that would re- be really great. I, I mentioned this when we were in the book of Ezra, how, you know, the magic eight ball. You would just be able to shake it, and it would tell you what to do. Well, that doesn't work. That's just a toy. That's just a novelty gift. But they had Urim and Thummim. We have something so much better. We have light and perfection. We have the light of God's word, a lamp to our feet, and the perfect word of God. And we have the Holy Spirit, who is light and perfection. He's perfect, and he enlightens us as to God's will when God's word doesn't specifically give us direction. As a pastor, I often field questions from people that sound something like this. Oh, pastor, the Bible doesn't say anything about X, Y, Z. Is it a sin? Oh, Pastor, the Bible doesn't really address this issue. Is it right? Is it wrong? And a lot of times, the Bible does sort of address those things, but even if it doesn't, like, let's use something like smoking as an example, okay? And I'm not saying this to make anybody feel bad. I know there are a lot of people that struggle with smoking. Most people don't want to smoke. They start it and they can't stop. There's a huge industry trying to get people to stop, so obviously it's very addictive, and I'm sympathetic to that. But people will come and say, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about smoking. Uh, Is it a sin? You know, I can't go to chapter and verse and tell you, well, yeah, the 11th commandment is thou shalt not smoke. But I can tell you it's bad for you. I can tell you it'll hurt you. Um, But there are a lot of things we do and things we eat even that are probably not good for us. If If you're eating salami, I can make an argument that that's probably as bad for you as smoking or at least It's not good for you. So what do we do in those situations? What do we tell people when someone comes and says, well, you know, pastor, is this wrong? Or brother, is is this a sin? You know, that's when you go to God in prayer and you ask God to direct you. You know the basics. You know that there are things that are good for you and bad for you. And generally, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you want to take care of yourself. But is it a sin? Well, it's bad for you. I can't say it's a sin, but it is bad for you. And you have to pray and ask God to reveal to you if that's something he's pleased with. 
I can't answer that question for you. You need the light and the perfection of God's will revealed through God's word, and if not through God's word, through the Holy Spirit of God, to reveal to you what you should and shouldn't do, who you should marry, where you should go on vacation, what car you should buy, what home you should buy. There's no, like, one answer. You're not going to be able to, go to be able to go to the book of Third Timothy, at least in my case, and find this chapter and verse that's going to tell you, yeah, you know, buy a Buick. No, buy a, buy a you know, a minivan. That we know would be from not the Lord, for me at least. So, you know, I think that it's important that you understand this principle. Lights and perfection for us, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God revealing to you God's will. And it's not always going to be the same for you as it is for someone else either. Especially if it's not explicitly stated, you have to look to God and be led of the Holy Spirit. When people try to run your life and tell you what's right and what's wrong for you outside of the Word of God, they're infringing upon your individual and personal relationship with God. Oh, you shouldn't dance. Really? Why? Does the Bible say that dancing is a sin? Well, no, but ah, and get off my back, Jack. But, you know, we, we, we see many church cultures where, you know, you're ostracized if you do something that someone decided you shouldn't do when the Bible doesn't say anything about it. That kind of irritates me a little bit, to be honest. So, the lights and the perfection. They needed God to lead them and guide them so that they could make decisions because they didn't have any written documentation. They didn't have any word from God that would tell them what to do. And it's a wonderful principle for leadership as well. Okay, one of the things, you look through these lists of names and you think, oh, Pastor Tim, why do they bother putting all those names in there and all those numbers? Well, the document was important at the time. Is it important today? Well, you know, these men are now forgotten by us and mankind, but they're remembered by God for all eternity. And God chose to put their names and these numbers of people in the Word, and they will be there because His Word will never pass away for all eternity. God has chosen to memorialize these individuals in that way, so... I'm not going to argue with it. I'm not going to sit here and read them. You can read them on your own if you want and mispronounce them like I would. But uh, at the end of the day, we've already covered it. Now, the people had a heart to invest in God's purpose 94 years earlier in 538 B.C. And that's what we learn here. Let's look first at verses 66 through 69. The whole company numbered 42,360 besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants. They also had 245 men and women singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys and a partridge and a pear tree. But, you know, I'm joking, of course. All of that just tells us there were people there that that brought things that, that were actually going to be used to restore the nation, going back almost 100 years earlier. Most of the Jews, though, remember, were satisfied to make a financial contribution and stay safely at home. Going back 100 years earlier, those returning to Judah or Judea were a very small portion of all the people in Babylon. It was only 42,360. There was a lot more Jews in Babylon at that time. But most said, you know what, I'll write a check. Most weren't interested in stepping out in faith. You know, there's a lot, a lot of people who will be very willing to make a donation, but not so willing to serve. There's a lot of churches that are built on the principle that, 
you have a professional staff of pastors. They do all the work, and you just pay your dues, and we'll take care of everything. Don't worry, you're pretty little head about anything. But we don't operate that way. We're a kind of church where we want you to have a, a vested interest, a stake, if you will, in the ministry. We want you to be involved. We want you to be the ministry. And even if you're not paid and, you're, you're, you know, that's not why you're doing it, it's still your church. This is your ministry. You have as much to say as to what happens here as I do. This is your family. This is your church. And one of the things that we've learned over the years is that it's better for people to be involved than to just write checks. Anybody can write a check. It's like the, oh, how does that go? Let's see. It was like the, uh, the, the rooster and the pig who wanted to bless the farmer. And the pig suggested that they make him breakfast, eggs and bacon. And the rooster said, yeah, well, that sounds pretty good. But the pig said, well, listen, I, you get to make a donation. I have to sacrifice. You know, the, the truth is, when, when you look at it that way, making a sacrifice is one thing. Making a donation, that's easy. Many people like to do that. But a sacrifice of your time, your talent, and your treasure is much more pleasing to God. Okay. The Jews didn't find it easy to leave Babylon now that they were wealthy and prosperous. Of course. The Lord hadn't called his people to stay in Babylon, though. He was calling them back to the promised land, and a hundred years later, a lot of people had not returned. Some leaders not only returned to rebuild the temple, they also invested financially in God's work. So they returned and they invested financially. And you know what I found? When when someone has a vested interest in the ministry, they're involved, they see themselves in leadership and in service at the church, you don't have to beg people to invest in the ministry. They do it because they're committed to the work. So you don't have to bring up giving. You don't have to talk about, you know, it's the end of the year and we looked at our budget. You know, I hate that stuff. And I'm willing to say it out loud. You'll never hear that at this church. You know, oh, well, it's December, and, you know, we need to raise another $200, or <laughs> probably a lot more than that when they have these conversations. To me, it's like you work with what God gives you. You know, that's what I do at home. I work with what God gives me. I don't, I don't when I want to get a new car, say, well, you know what? In order to get this new car, I, I'm going to have to start, you know, knocking on my neighbor's door. I really want to get this new car, and I need to raise another, uh, you know, $10,000. you mind helping out? Shame on people that think that way, to be honest with you. Shame on that. God is not a pauper. God has the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need our money and our resources. And I, I just don't like betraying, you know, portraying God in that way. So we don't. But notice, the leaders that returned freely gave. They were led by the Lord to give. Look at verses 70 through 72. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury, a thousand drachmas of gold. Now, this is reflecting back, you know, a hundred years earlier. Um, Fifty bowls and 530 garments for the priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury, (coughs) excuse me, for the work, 20,000 drachmas of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 drachmas of gold, 2,000 minas of silver, and 67 garments for the priests. Now, in that, you see that people were very generous, And this is what he's finding out. They freely gave as they were led by the Lord to give. And they gave according to the resources that God had blessed them with. And that's all we can do. If God blesses you with resources, you give according to the Lord's leading. And their giving has now been forgotten by man and mankind, but it's recorded by God for all eternity. God knows who these people are. And by the way, while we do record giving here, and I'm not involved in that, and I don't really, 
avail myself of those records. We have trustees who take care of that. Uh, it's not so important that we know. We, we keep track for tax purposes. What's more important is that God knows. And there are lots of people that give even to this ministry anonymously. It goes into the bank as anonymous because people don't really want or need the tax write-off. They just want to give to the Lord. And you know something? God sees, God knows our hearts and how we give. That's all that's important. It's not my business to even get involved in that. I don't look at those records. I look at the money going out very closely. (laughs) But I don't look at the money coming in. I just look at the bottom line, deposit, and I say, oh, okay, great. That's it. Now, when I look at this, I realize investing in God's work is a privilege. It's a blessing. It's not an obligation at all. They gave freely, and they gave according to the resources that they had, and their giving has never been forgotten by God. Now, those returning to Judea were able to reclaim their property after many years. We read in the first part of verse 73, the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Now, that happened almost 100 years earlier. They got settled, and now we're, we're catching up. Nehemiah is catching up from the past to the present so that he can make good decisions in the present. And then we read that when the seventh month came, the, the Israelites had settled in their towns. It's interesting because th- that's what happened in the past, and, and, and that's where we start. Let's look to the past, and let's pick up the baton where the first group of people started so that we can complete the work. That's the idea. But those that returned to Judah were able to re- reclaim their property. By the way, the Samaritans were probably not very happy. I'm sure they were displeased at having to surrender land that they thought they owned and acquired, which explains why they didn't want Jerusalem to be rebuilt. This is why the opposition existed, because they didn't want the Jews to reclaim their land and their property. Now, that sounds familiar. (laughs) Even today, in the Middle East, the enemies of the Jews, not just Samaritans, but the enemies of the Jews, don't want them to reclaim their land. And so there you have the Arab-Israeli conflict that's been going on for over 100 years now in earnest, probably earlier than that, but specifically uh, over the last uh, about, about 100 years. Now, the Samaritans would not have been pleased with this, and the unexpected return of the Jews to God's promise and purpose would have created many enemies. And in fact, it did. We've been reading about that in the book of Nehemiah. But whenever we respond to God's call, we can expect severe opposition from the enemy. And that's exactly what happened. Now, the first priority, though, for these who returned earlier, was to settle their families in their towns. They, they could not have properly assembled until they had settled things at home. They put first things first. They wanted to worship the Lord without the distraction of their familial responsibilities. So they took care of things at home, and then they came together in unity to worship the Lord as one body. You see the priority. That was true in the past. This now becomes a lead-in to Nehemiah's time. So we've just listed what happened in the past. Now we get to chapter 8, and we realize the same thing that happened then happens in Nehemiah's time. We read that all the people, in verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read this section, that all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate, and they told Esther the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. 
And he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, or excuse me, yes, of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe. It's the same Ezra, of course, from the book of Ezra. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him on his right stood, and it lists a number of the Levites. And on his left were another number of Levites. Their names are mentioned there. And Ezra opened the book, and all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands, and they responded, Amen, Amen. And then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and it goes on to list their names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. And they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear or understandable, if you will, and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. So there you have the importance of reading the word of God and understanding it, right? For hundreds of years, thousands of years, really. You, you, you had the church in Europe keeping the word of God from the people in an unspoken language, Latin, which was not spoken by the common people. So they kept it in Latin, that way they could control the people. God doesn't want his word in an, un, in an ununderstandable language. So in the 14 and 1500s, brave men and women decided to work towards delivering God's word in the language that the common people spoke, whether it was English or German or Swedish or other, other or Swiss. Or, it was the language that the people could read. And even English, when, when it was translated into King James, was really a higher level of English. It was Tyndale and, and others who, who translated into a language that most people could understand. Wycliffe as well. There were many people who worked very hard to get God's word in a form that we have it today and take for granted. Many people will come to me and say, oh, Pastor Tim, I'm following along in the scripture and my Bible's a little different. Yeah, I mean, there's different translations. The modern English translations are all pretty similar. Uh, For reference, I've been teaching for decades and I got stuck on the NIV 1984 edition and uh, they updated it years later, and I didn't like the update, so I stayed with that. But unfortunately, the publishers uh, don't make the older version available, which I think is much better. It's not all that gender-neutral stuff and wokeism. Uh, But if you do need to buy a Bible that would be easy to follow along, uh, I recommend the ESV. But isn't it so good that we have options, that we have choices, NASB, ESV, NIV 84. You know, we have all these options. There was a time where people, you know, they they got their biblical truth from stained glass windows and murals and frescoes because either they couldn't read or they couldn't read the word of God because it was in Latin or a language they couldn't understand. So praise God that we have the word of God available to us. But as we look at what happened here, the people came together and Ezra the priest and the scribe read the book of the law of Moses to the people. And the people came together in unity. They came there to worship the Lord as one body, just like they did 94 years earlier. And that's why we had that lead in of the previous chapter uh, describing what happened. Nehemiah sees that and he goes, well, we're going to follow that. So he gathers the people. He got his direction from the word of God, right? Oh, this is what they did 100 years ago. Let's do it again. So everybody gets together. They gather there in the city just like they did so long ago. 
And they asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law of Moses. Ezra read the book of the law of Moses to the people from morning till noon. So the whole morning. Uh, They had gathered on the first day of the seventh month. Now, those of you who are familiar with the Jewish feasts know that the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets, or Rosh Hashanah. And that was celebrated on that day, and that's why they gathered together, because this was a time of gathering. Uh, This, by the way, is a feast that has prophetic significance, because just like the feasts of the spring were fulfilled by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, in the case of Shavuot or the day of Pentecost, uh, the fall feasts will be fulfilled as well. Now, exactly and precisely how, I, I can't tell you, but there's some indications here. Um, for example, I mean, Passover, you know, we know Passover was fulfilled by Jesus, you know, when he was the Passover lamb, right, that, that died for us. And there was the Feast of the first fruits, which he was the first fruits of the dead on that following Sunday. That's a Sunday feast. Um, you also had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a time of contemplation. And that took place uh, during the time shortly after the Passover, a week later. So he fulfilled all those feasts, his body broken for us, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, and then 50 days later, you have the Feast of Pentecost. That's when the Holy Spirit came down on that very day. So Jesus fulfills the first three of the spring. And then there's the summer feast, the Feast of Pentecost, fulfilled by the Holy Spirit. Then you have these feasts that, that have continued to happen, but there's, there's a prophetic significance, but they haven't been fulfilled yet. They, the others have been, but not these three. And of course, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkoth, or the Feast of Tabernacles. But the first of these Jewish feasts, or fall feasts, as they're sometimes called, was the Feast of Trumpets, and so they gather. We believe that that's a prophetic Uh, type or symbol of the gathering of the Jews when Messiah returns. So when Messiah returns, he's going to gather his people to himself. And so the Feast of Trumpets is a time of gathering for the Jewish people. Uh, And they all were there gathered just like that on the day of Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, There were men and women and all those who were able to understand. And they all listened attentively to Ezra as he read to them. And Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses from a high wooden platform, a large group of people, and he he was up there so everyone could see, surrounded by many of their leaders, and the people stood when he opened the book out of respect. You know, I've been to some churches uh, where, you know, actually growing up in the church that I did, there would be readings, and you've probably noticed, I mean, I preach here in the middle, but uh, the church I grew up in had the two pulpits like you see to my right and to my left, and there was a protocol Uh, there would be different readings. And so you'd read from the epistles or the book of Acts. Uh, You'd read from the lower pulpit. But the gospel was always read from the higher pulpit. It's just part of the liturgical worship service. But we would read or or have a reading, and then we would say, thanks be to God. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And there was this idea that you would stand and listen to the word of God out of respect for the word of God. And then you would sit down, and the, the pastor or the priest would, you know, do a homily or, or teach or share on what was read. But some of the scriptures were read from here, and then some of the, you know, the gospel specifically was read from this pulpit. Well, this is interesting because Ezra's way up high, and the people stand because they have reverence and respect for the word of God. And I think you know, there's something to that. We're not going to start doing that, but I think there's something to that. 
It says a lot about the heart more than anything else. But the people stood up, and he, Ezra led the people as they all praised the Lord together. Now, we do that. We do ask you to stand when we praise, and everyone praises, and then we sit for the, for the teaching. But the Levites instructed the people in the law because they read, they knew the scripture, as Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses. They were willing to teach and instruct the people from God's word. So Ezra reads, he's a priest, he's a scribe, he reads, and then when people had questions or they couldn't understand it, the leaders would come alongside the people and explain it to them. See, they were able to help the people to understand by doing two things, translating, because many of the people didn't speak the language, or didn't speak it well, and then even explaining God's word. So it's funny because a lot of what I do as a pastor and as a teacher is that, translating it. Sometimes it's like, well, sharing with you what the word in the original language means so you can better understand the text, or much of that is done for me these days, or explaining God's word, breaking it apart like we are right now, just sort of looking at it. I'm giving you the history. I'm giving you the understanding so that you can receive God's word, understand it, and apply it to your life. That is the model for Calvary Chapel. And I dare say it's kind of where it comes from, this chapter in the book of Nehemiah. That the word of God was read, the people had respect for the word of God, and they understood it. And when they didn't, others came along to help them to understand it but that understanding the Word of God was the priority. At Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel, North Jersey, but the the movement as a whole, understanding the Word of God is the priority. And that's the proof text from the Word of God from the book of Nehemiah, where you will find the principle that we follow in our worship services, right here, right in this section, which is really kind of awesome. Well, Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites encouraged the people to celebrate this day as a sacred day. We read in verses 9 through 12. Something very interesting happened, and we'll read it. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. And I love this. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it's so true. Joy brings strength. Mourning brings weakness. Grieving brings weakness. But joy brings strength. And then he says the Levites calmed all the people. I mean, people were sobbing. Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. You see, they were crying because they understood God's word. Sometimes the reaction, sometimes of understanding God's word when it's taught properly, is you're brought to tears. You're cut to the heart. Have you ever been there? I've certainly been there. You hear something, God is speaking to you. You understand your failure. You understand you need to repent. You're cut to the heart. You begin to grieve and mourn. The people were so convicted that they started to mourn and to weep, and they had to calm them down and and stop and just let them go get something to eat so that they could be filled with joy. This was supposed to be a joyful assembly, but the people were so cut to the heart that they were grieving. The leaders had compassion on the people. They said, that's enough. That's enough for now. 
And so, they didn't want them to weep. But notice they wept because, probably for a couple of reasons. They probably didn't immediately understand the word, but then when it was explained to them, they realized they had failed to keep God's word. They had come up short. They hadn't obeyed God's word. And so they encourage them, celebrate with feasting. Don't grieve, be filled with joy. And by the way, true repentance is supposed to bring joy. True repentance is supposed to bring joy. It leaves no regret. Repentance, godly sorrow. It brings you to repentance and it leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. But godly sorrow should actually, once you've gotten past the grieving and the repenting, should bring joy to your spirit. Joy that comes from God strengthens us in our sorrow. So joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Joy comes from God. Happiness comes from your circumstances. Joy comes from God. You can have joy in sorrow. And that's the most important thing we can remember when we're grieving, when we're going through a horrible time, when, we're, when we're, we're, we've lost someone or we're going through difficulties, our health, whatever. Find the joy. That will be your strength. Where do you find the joy? The joy comes from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Where do you find that joy? In the Word of God. Just like we see here in this holy, sacred gathering. So the people spent the afternoon feasting and celebrating with great joy because they now understood God's word, and understanding God's word is cause for celebration. Amen? I can remember when I started to study God's word, and I'd be in church, and the pastor would explain something. I'm like, oh my goodness! It was just revelatory. You just couldn't believe you never even knew that. And what joy that brings to our hearts. Well, in verse 13, the leaders came together the next day, just the leaders, to study the book of the law of Moses. They needed some education there a little bit. So in verse 13, we read, On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back the branches from olive and wild olive trees and from the myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, in the square by the water gate, and the one by the gate of Ephraim, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. You see what happens when you obey God's word? Your joy will be very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. So they had celebrated the, the Feast of Trumpets. And as they were reading the word of God together, they learned that there was another feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, that would come up in just a few days. And so they gathered, the leaders gathered, around Ezra to study God's word. And after discovering that God had commanded them to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles on the 15th day of the seventh month, so like about two weeks later, for seven days and then even the following day, 
the people celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with great joy and obedience to the law of Moses. Now, how did they do that? Well, maybe you know this, because Jews still do this today. They built tabernacles throughout the city of Jerusalem. They lived in them. The idea was to remember being in the wilderness, living in tents and living under the stars, as opposed to being in homes. Uh, They had not celebrated this feast like this since the time Joshua, the time of Joshua, after they entered the land. It's a long time ago, a very long time ago. And Ezra read from the book of the law of God on each day of the seven-day feast and the following day. Now, just to close, uh, this, this feast, we talked about the prophetic significance or symbolism of the Feast of Trumpets. This feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, speaks prophetically of the coming earthly kingdom when Messiah returns. In fact, if you read about this, you'll see that the prophets talk about this being celebrated after the Messiah returns. Uh, I believe Ezekiel gets into that. I think Zechariah does as well. This idea that we're gonna, they're going to celebrate, the Jews are going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So that will be fulfilled as well. See, I, I believe that in the last days, uh, when, as we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, after the time of the tribulation, Christ will return. And when he does, he's going to gather his people to himself. And if the fall feasts are anything like the spring feasts, 14 days later, two weeks later, they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Some of this is sort of indicated in the book of Daniel as well. And one of the other feasts that's not mentioned in this section here is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that happens on the 10th day. That's between those feasts. So he's going to gather Israel, and while it's not mentioned here, they're going to be forgiven and atoned. And then they're going to gather and celebrate being in God's presence. And that's going to last probably for like a thousand years, but the feast will be celebrated. So we look forward to the future when those fall feasts will be fulfilled as well. But for this evening, Nehemiah brought about all of these reforms with the help of other leaders and Ezra the priest because he wasn't just concerned with the walls. He was concerned with the people and their heart for God. And so one of the things we need to remember is as we make changes, as we do things, as we look to reform our own lives, it's always done not for the purpose of an outward thing, but for an inward thing. See, it's more important to reform our hearts than the outward structures. I was driving down, uh, I had to go to jury duty last week, and I was driving down 280, and I looked up, and I saw, on my way home, I saw a scaffolding around a really ornate church tower. It looked like it was probably a bell tower. The whole top was painted gold. It was, I've seen this being worked on before. But as I saw the scaffolding there, you know what popped into my head, right? wonder how expensive it is to do whatever it is they're doing to that tower. And I thought, is that really the best way to spend God's money? That, that, that's how I think. I guess that's, that's who I am. And I thought to myself, you know, it's great to have a bell tower. It's great to have a beautiful golden tower that everybody can see and to keep it clean and to do all you're doing and spend all that money to do it. But God isn't concerned with the outward. He's concerned with the inward. So I I pray that that group of people have a very strong inward spiritual life. But so many times the outward, the exterior looks good. But the inside is filled with dead men's bones, as Jesus said, of the sepulchres in and around Jerusalem. May we never be guilty of only addressing the outward and not the inward heart. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement in the book of Nehemiah. We pray that we would continue to 
live our lives for you. And especially this Christmas season, may we not get so concerned with the outward trappings of Christmas, the commercialism, the gifts, and all of these things. May we be more concerned about the heart, our heart for you. May that be our focus this Christmas season, and always we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.